Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1. We live in a day where everything is criticized in a cynical way. If um, we make a statement of a fact to an average person in our society, they often respond with, well, that's your opinion. We have talk shows on TV and radio that invite people to call in and and give their opinion on different topics. And at the end of the show, nothing really has been accomplished. You just have a lot of people telling what they think. You don't know if there was a winner or a loser. It's like a peewee baseball game. There's don't keep score, so you just there's lots of talking. But everybody just gives their opinions. And this makes it extremely difficult for us as Christians when it comes to sharing the gospel, doesn't it? Because we can tell something that is a fact about the Bible, about their sin, about Jesus Christ, and that they deserve God's wrath just like we do, but that Jesus came to spare them from that wrath and that He is the only way that a person can get to heaven to be reconciled to God And how do they often respond? Well, that's your opinion. Or, I have my own religion. I have my own beliefs. I have my own faith. And their mindset is, well, we just can all just kind of get along. We can all get to this God on our own. We don't have to each agree on on this, on this, uh, this faith. We'll believe how we want to believe. And so it's it's complicated. To, to give the Scriptures, but our, our um, responsibility is to continue to give it and to continue to be um, truthful about what we are saying and expect God to give the results or to, to produce the results. Paul here in Galatians has been indirectly attacked by these false teachers, these Judaizers, these uh, antagonists, troublemakers, and the Galatian churches they have apparently been going around to these churches and saying that Paul's gospel is not the true gospel for several reasons, but one is that Paul's not really an apostle. Paul's just kind of a, a pseudo, pseudo-apostle. And uh, actually, Paul's gospel was really received by people. It was really made up. It wasn't the true gospel. It, it denies all the Jewish customs that we've known for thousands of years, how could it be the true gospel? And sadly, the Galatian churches are buying into this false teaching. They're buying into it. They're starting to desert the true faith and adopt these Jewish customs and say, yeah, a person does need to be circumcised in order to to be a Christian. And so Paul here in his letter starts out with some vehement language that opposes these false teachers in the Galatian churches. And he spends really much of his time in chapter 1 showing that his gospel is the true gospel, that it came directly from Christ, that it was not made up, it was rightly motivated, and that, that it came from God, that God was the one who sourced his gospel. And so the passage that we will look at today, we'll see that it didn't come from the Jerusalem church, it didn't come from the apostles themselves, it actually came from Jesus Christ, and neither was it taught to him by the churches around Jerusalem. It was something that was given to him by God. So let's look at these 
last several verses in Galatians chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. Chapter 1, verse 18. This is the Word of God. Then three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas, or Peter, and stayed with him fifteen days. But I did not see any other of the apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now in what I am writing to you, I assure you before God that I am not lying. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown by sight to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ. But only they kept hearing, He who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith which he once tried to destroy. And they were glorifying God because of me. Paul begins his letter uh, to these believers in Galatians, in in the Galatian regions, the Galatian churches, by uh, by explaining the the true gospel, that that it is about God. Verse 4 talks about that, where he says, listen, the, the gospel is all about God. And then in verses 6 through 9, he talks about uh, the fact that if anyone turns from that gospel that is all about God, that is all about Jesus Christ, that is apart from works, if anyone turns from that gospel to another gospel, then he is to be eternally condemned. If if someone teaches that gospel, verses 8 and 9, he repeats it, let him be accursed. Let him be accursed. Then in verses 10 through 17, Paul gives three reasons why his gospel is the true gospel. In verse 10, he says, my gospel is the true gospel because it's rightly motivated. It's not in order to please men. I'm not here to please men. That's why I'm giving you such harsh language. I was trying to please you people. I wouldn't be talking this way. I would be accommodating you and changing my message constantly. So it's rightly motivated. The second reason that my gospel is the true gospel, Paul says, it's because in verses 11 and 12, it came from Christ. It wasn't something that I derived in my own mind or that I made up or that I received from any other man other than Jesus Christ alone. It's, it was revealed to me by Christ. And then the third reason is because it was sourced in God. Verses 13 through 17 we saw last week that God was the one who set him apart from the time of uh, before really his he was in his mother's womb and, and he set him apart to reveal Christ in him, to, to send Paul to be a, a witness to the Gentiles. And so now he continues that thought. Those are the first three reasons why his gospel is the true gospel. The second three reasons are found in verses 18 through 24. The first reason in verse 18, or we could say the fourth reason overall, that Paul's gospel is the true gospel, is that it did not come from the Jerusalem church. Verse 18. It did not come from the Jerusalem church. He says, three years later, then three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas. The argument by Paul's opponents apparently was that the gospel was distorted. That that Paul had taken the gospel that he had received from Jerusalem and then he manipulated a little bit and then he gave it to the Galatians. And so, what the the false teachers were telling the Galatian people was, you need to abandon Paul's gospel because it was manipulated and changed. It's not the true thing. 
But Paul in verse 18 makes it clear that, no, I did not consult Jerusalem. Okay, when you think of Jerusalem, you should think the center of Christian religion at that time, the Christian faith. That's where it started out, right? Acts chapter 2, where you have the, the, the Holy Spirit coming at Pentecost and people uh, showing that it was of the Lord by speaking in tongues. And, and, uh, and so you have the Gospel going out from Jerusalem, but the real center of it was Jerusalem, even when you get to Acts chapter 15, which is actually following this, this book of Galatians that Paul writes, you have people coming back to Jerusalem to discuss whether or not a person needs to adopt Jewish customs in order to be saved. And so Jerusalem is very much the hub of the Christian faith at this time. And so if Paul's gospel came from Jerusalem, what could have happened is he, he went to Jerusalem understood and learned the gospel from them, and then changed it, manipulated it to make it more palatable for people or make it so that he could please people better. So maybe Paul's understanding was not clear. Maybe Paul didn't really know what the true gospel was until he went to Jerusalem. But here's what Paul is saying in chapter 1, verse 18. I didn't even go to Jerusalem after I was saved until how long after? Three years. Okay, And the reason I know it's after his salvation because in verses uh, 15 through 17, he's talking about his salvation. So he's saying, then three years later, after my conversion, then I went to Jerusalem. And so if you're saying that I learned the Gospel from Jerusalem, then that's not valid. Because you know what I was doing during those three years? Listen to Acts chapter 9. This is immediately following his conversion there on the road to Damascus. Verses 19 and 20. Now for several days, he, Paul, was with the disciples who were at Damascus, and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues, saying he is the Son of God. Paul says, you know what I was doing for those three years before I even went to Jerusalem, which is where you're saying that I got the Gospel from? I was already preaching the Gospel. Well, how could that be? If I was preaching the Gospel before I came to Jerusalem to learn and understand the Gospel, what was I preaching during that time? And, and obviously the point is that I already knew the Gospel because I received it from Christ. And so Paul tells the purpose of his visit in verse 18. His purpose of his visit was not actually to learn the gospel, but it was to, notice the middle of the verse, to become acquainted with Cephas or Peter. It wasn't to learn from him, to sit under his teaching, ah, Peter, you've been an apostle for a long time, I'm going to sit under you. Not that he disrespected Peter or that he was at odds with Peter, but he's saying the reason that my gospel is the true gospel is because it's sourced in God. It comes directly from Christ. Not from another man. So Paul's gospel is the true gospel because it did not come from the Jerusalem church. Secondly, his gospel did not come from the apostles. did not come from the apostles. At the end of verse 18, it says that Paul stayed with Peter for 15 days. Verse 19, but I did not see any other of the apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now, in what I am writing you, I assure you before God that I am not lying. 
So Paul says, my gospel is the true gospel because I didn't go to Jerusalem to learn it and then manipulate it. And secondly, I didn't learn it from the, the apostles and therefore maybe I got it wrong or I didn't quite understand something fully so then I changed it a little bit and then I taught it to you. No. That's not what happened at all. He's not trying to minimize the role of the apostles. Certainly, he's not trying to say that I, I, I disregard them in any way, but rather that that's not where his gospel came from. Two reasons we know that. Because first, at the end of verse 18, notice how long he stayed. Fifteen days. That would not have been long enough, a little over two weeks, for Paul to, to be able to learn and to understand all of Christ's work and ministry and what He had taught. And then verse 19, the second reason we know that it did not come from the apostles is because He only saw two of the apostles. He didn't even see all twelve of them. In verse 18, we find out that He spent time with Peter, but then He also spent some time with James, the Lord's brother, in verse 19. Now, there is debate over whether James, the Lord's brother, was an apostle. You do have two apostles named James. One is James, the brother of John, who at this point has already been killed. Uh, He's been beheaded by Herod. And I think that was in Acts chapter 10. Uh, This is taking place shortly after Acts chapter 11. So so in Acts chapter 10, uh, James, the brother of John, has been beheaded. The other James is uh, James, the son of Alphaeus. And other than the time that we know of him during the time of Christ, we don't really hear a lot about him at all. This specifically is referring to James, the Lord's brother. And the text seems to indicate that, that he was also listed as one of the apostles. Notice the language there in verse 19. I did not see any other of the apostles except James, the Lord's brother. So it's Paul seeming to including to include James as this as one of the apostles. But the the language there, the word except that's translated there in the New American Standard can also be translated as but. So it would read like this, or however. I did not see any other of the apostles. However, I did see James, the Lord's brother. Okay, and that, if you see it in that way, if it's translated in that way, you could see how that he would not be an apostle in that in that sense. Um, originally, how many apostles were there? Remember? There were 11 because Judas was not an apostle. But then they had to add one because Judas was, uh, was a false um, believer. And so they added Matthias in Acts chapter 1. Um, but we don't have the exact number of 12 apostles throughout the early church. Because you have Paul added, right? So that makes at least 13. And potentially Barnabas, according to Acts chapter 14, could have also been an apostle, although that word could be used simply as a proclaimer of Christ. So, so, but, but the point is, you don't have to have an exact number of 12 apostles at all times. Uh, we, we think of it in those terms. And certainly there is something to be said about 12 apostles, but there, there certainly are more as well. So, so James here, the Lord's brother, could also be one. There are three qualifications that are given in Acts chapter 1 for an apostle. First, he had to have been with the Lord Jesus from the time of his baptism till the time of his death. Okay, which James, the Lord's brother, would have been with the Lord Jesus 
during that time. Now, from John chapter, um, I don't have the re- John chapter seven. Actually, I do have the reference. John chapter seven, verse five, tells us that while Jesus was alive, even his brothers didn't believe in him. So, although James was with Jesus during his life, he grew up with him, he knew him, he spent time with him, and he was probably likely with him from the time of his baptism to his death. He didn't believe in him until after the resurrection. The second qualification is that an apostle must have seen the risen Lord. He must have seen Christ after His resurrection. And that's true of all the eleven. Remember, Jesus appeared specifically several times to the eleven apostles and taught them at times. He did the same thing to Paul. Now, Paul apparently gets an exception on the first part where he was with the Lord from the time of his baptism. But but it's clear that he did see the risen Lord. And then the third is that he must have been appointed by the Lord. So there's three main qualifications to be an apostle. And so since James was the Lord's brother, he would have known Christ from the time of his baptism. He would have seen the risen Lord and he, he likely was commissioned by him, although we don't have a record of it. In fact, in why don't you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 because we see further 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We see that, that James actually did see the risen Lord, so this gives him the second qualification. The only one we don't know for sure is, that, is the third one, which is he was commissioned by the Lord. We don't have a text that says that, but again, we have Galatians 1 that talks about him being an apostle. Galatians, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and we'll begin reading in verse 6. Let's, uh, let's start in verse 3 just to get the context. For I deliver to you as of first importance that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, Peter, and then to the twelve, and after that He appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. And last of all, as the one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles, and not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. So Paul lists here several people to whom Jesus had appeared. That he appeared to the apostles, he appeared to Peter, But he also appeared in verse 7 to James. And that's why I say this is likely referring to James, the Lord's brother. Because um, the the other two James would have been listed among the apostles. And so this very likely is James, the Lord's brother. Turn back to Galatians chapter 1. James also wrote, James the Lord's brother, that is, also wrote the book of James. And one of the qualifications for writing or, or to, be, to write inscripturated or, or inspired Word of God, the inspired New Testament, was either he had to be an apostle or a close associate of an apostle. And so if James were an apostle, it would give him the, uh, the right, really, the privilege to be able to write such a book. And so Paul's point here is, and, and I take... James, the Lord's brother, to be an apostle, I, I recognize that there, 
there are arguments against that, but I, I, I'll put that out there. Um, it's hard to know for sure. Verses 18 and 19 show that Paul saw two apostles, Peter and James the Lord's brother. When he was in Jerusalem, he was only there for 15 days and he only saw two of the apostles. And so his point now is, listen, I didn't get to, I didn't go to Jerusalem to learn the gospel from them. Not from the church. Not from the apostles. I only saw two of them and I only spent a few, a few days with Peter. Verse 20, he says, I assure you, verse 20, now in what I'm writing to you, I assure you before God that I am not lying. The reason he puts in this parenthetical statement is likely because his accusers were saying, Paul is a liar. Paul is making it all up. And Paul says, listen, what I am saying to you is the truth. I was only in Jerusalem three years after I was saved and only for 15 days. He, in this verse, verse 20, uses courtroom language to show that he is speaking the truth. It's as if he's saying, I would say this as if I'm standing before the very throne room of God. I assure you that I am not lying. My gospel does not come from the Jerusalem church. My gospel did not come from the apostles. And then thirdly, Paul says his gospel did not come from the churches in the area around Jerusalem, the area of Judea, verses 21 through 24. In verse 21, Paul tells us that he left Jerusalem. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. And what he doesn't tell you is all the reasons for his leaving. Acts fills in the details for us. Apparently, Paul had been speaking the gospel in Damascus shortly after his his conversions, but the government plotted against his life and tried to kill him up in that region, the Syrian region. And so at that time, he had to be let down by a basket through the window. So from there, he went to Jerusalem, and he tells us why here he went there to meet with Cephas, to meet with Peter. But he couldn't stay there very longer either because when people started to find out about him, They, of course, knew about him because, as he told us last time in verses 13 and following, I was advancing within the the Pharisaical uh, uh, ranks. I was advancing among all of my contemporaries. I was more zealous about my ancestral traditions than all the rest. So, of course, they knew who Paul was. He was at at the front, the forefront of bringing uh, Christians into incarcerate incarcerate them and then finally execute them. So when he comes back to Jerusalem, of course people are going to know that he's there. And they're also going to know what's changed about him. That he's now, not only is he not persecuting Christians, but he's become one. And so his former colleagues, these other uh, Pharisees, would certainly have caused an uproar so while he was praying in the temple, according to Acts chapter 22, God told him to get out of there. Get out of Jerusalem and go preach to the Gentiles. So Paul left there. In fact, he was escorted by some other disciples of Jesus Christ to Caesarea. Paul would head from Caesarea uh, across the port there, uh, from the port across to, to Tarsus, which was his hometown. And he stayed there 
And apparently that's where he is for several years. Apparently another uh, 14 years he is in in that, that area, in Tarsus. Uh, because that's when Barnabas comes in Acts chapter 13 to get him. If you've been here on Wednesday nights a few Wednesdays ago, we looked at Acts chapter 13 and we saw Barnabas comes and verifies uh, some Gentiles being saved, but he, he knows that they need to be grounded in the faith. And so he gets the person who's the best person for teaching the Gentiles, and that is Paul. And so in order to get him, he has to go back to Tarsus. He gets Paul from there. Paul comes and Paul teaches them and so on. And, and it's there that, that they, the church there wants to give, the church in Antioch there wants to give money to the Jerusalem church. So that'll be 14 years later. We'll talk about that next time. That's Paul's second visit to Jerusalem. So think of it. From the time that he was saved till 17 years afterwards, he had only been in Jerusalem for two times. Once to meet with Peter, and he did that for 15 days. And the second time was to take the famine relief money to the, the church there in Jerusalem. Paul's saying, listen, I didn't get my gospel from the people in Jerusalem. I didn't get it from the apostle, uh, from the apostles. No, actually, I, I've been in in uh, the Syrian area, and I've been in Tarsus, Tarsus for most of my conversion, converted life. And um, so, so how could my authority be based on the Jerusalem church or the apostles or even the churches around the area? In fact, he says in verses 22 through 24 that they didn't even recognize me. Notice verse 22. I was still unknown by sight to the churches of Judea which were in Christ. But only they kept hearing, He who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith which He once destroyed. You see, Paul saying, I, I didn't hang around the Jerusalem area. This area, this Judean area, really is the area of Jerusalem and Galilee and, um, and Judea proper even and Samaria. So Paul saying, all that area there in, in modern day Israel... I wasn't even around that area. They don't even know me by sight. Why? They've only been there. I've only been to Jerusalem once. And it's for 15 days. They've heard about me. They know a lot about me, but they haven't seen me. So I didn't get my gospel from them either. The earliest churches would have been started in Jerusalem and around Jerusalem. Certainly the first church was started in Jerusalem, but then certainly around that area where lots of Jews would be living. Paul's saying, I didn't hang out over there. I wasn't there at all. They don't know me. In fact, a whole other generation of Christians have probably come up since that time. It's been ten years. Think about how different the, the, um, the, the people were in this church from ten years ago. Okay? Many of us, including myself, were not in this church ten years ago. So you have a different group of people and even some children who have been saved in those ten years, Paul's saying the same things happened in those Judean churches. They weren't around when I used to be persecuting the church, and some of these young people don't even know me by sight. And therefore, I didn't get my gospel from them. These churches would have been at the center of what uh, Christ was doing in this region. 
they, they would have been an a integral part of Christ's mission to spread. Remember, it started in Jerusalem and then Judea and Samaria. That's what Paul's talking about. Not even in that area did they know me. And then the gospel is going to go to the uttermost parts of the, of the world. They didn't know me there. But they did have an impression about me. Verse 23. But only they kept hearing, He who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith which he once tried to destroy. See, they had a positive impression of him. Even though they didn't know him by sight, when they heard reports about him, they were encouraged because they recognized that he was once an enemy of the Christian faith. He was once an enemy of Christ himself. And now he was his servant. And so they respected him for that, even though they didn't know him personally. Verse 24 says that they were glorifying God because of me. And I think this is really the climax of Paul's arguments. He's saying their response to what the Gospel did to me, the transforming power of the Gospel, shows that the Gospel is a genuine, true Gospel. That this isn't something I made up in order to get... You can go back and verify with the Judean churches who never had any contact with me. Do you see? I wasn't there. They never had any contact with me. And yet, how do they respond to me and my gospel message? They see the transformation that's happened in me, even though they haven't seen me. So there's plenty of validation for my gospel. Stop rejecting it. Stop trying to change it. If God has changed me, and the Jerusalem and Judean churches recognize it, then it must be of God. And so Paul gives six total reasons why his gospel is the true gospel and why the Galatian churches must believe it. My encouragement for you today and for me is to understand the true gospel and make sure that you know what you're defending. The way that you do that is by by learning the gospel. Okay? The gospel is not just for I said this many times the gospel is not just for unbelievers so that they can come to Christ. The gospel is for us. The gospel is for believers, why? Because it still changes us. It's what we have to keep our focus on. And if we stop holding to the true gospel, we will have denied the faith. And that's what the Galatians were starting to do. They were starting to slip. That's why he says in verse 6, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. Do you ever uh, hear the preaching of maybe somebody on the radio or on television or maybe at a church you were visiting and you heard it initially and thought, wow, that, that sounds right. That sounds true. And what you found out later was that your own pastor or maybe as you were studying the Scriptures for yourself, you saw, you know what? What I thought was right over there is not right. That that gospel was not the true gospel. And and maybe it happens another time, another time, and you wonder, why is it that I keep drifting back and forth? I can't actually be solid in my understanding of the gospel. 
And I think the answer really comes in Ephesians chapter 4. Would you turn there with me? Ephesians chapter 4. The way we avoid drifting to every wind of doctrine. Okay. Oh, that sounds, that sounds right. Oh, this new doctrine is taught. I'll take that. The way we avoid that is told for us here in Ephesians chapter 4. Let's look at the result first, and then we'll go back and see how we make sure that this doesn't happen in our lives, individually and as a church. Verse 14, As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. Okay, So there's where we want to be. We don't want to be carried away by every wind of doctrine as if we're just a wave in the sea, just kind of going back and forth with whatever way the wind is blowing. We don't want to be like that spiritually. So how do we avoid that? And the answer comes in verses 11 through 13. And really in verses 15 through 16 as well. But let's start with verses 11 through 13. And He, God, gave some as apostles and some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Okay, let's step back there close carefully. Verse 13, we all are trying to attain to a unity of faith to become a mature man or a mature person. How does that happen? Verses 11 and 12. God has given these people, apostles and prophets, those have already been done away with. You understand that, right? No more apostles, no more prophets. He's given evangelists, which I take as, as missionaries. Okay, People who are on the pioneer side, they're going out to places where churches are not planted and they're planting churches. That's what I'd take as evangelists there. And I don't have reason to go. I don't have time. To, I don't have reason. I don't have time to go into all the reasons. And then finally, pastors and teachers, which I take is within the context of every local church. So here's what God's done for us. In order to avoid us from being drifted away from side to side, all over the place by all these different and sometimes false doctrines, many times false doctrines, He's given pastors and teachers. Why? Verse 12. For the equipping of the saints for the work of the service to the building up of the body of Christ. And one of the things that God has done for you to help and, and for me to help us to stay on the right tracks is He's given us leaders within the church to teach us the Scriptures and to help stay firm in the Gospel, the faith. But it's not only happening as a result of the pastor. Look at verse 15. Okay. After verse 14 talks about this is how we avoid it, or this is where we are, we're not carried away by every wind of doctrine, verse 15, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ. That's talking about every one of us. Verse 16, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causing the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. There's lots of things going on in these verses, but let me just draw draw out a few. First of all, it is as each 
we are protected from being carried away by every wind of doctrine as each member is speaking the truth to one another in love. You know the word we use for that? It's called fellowship. Now, when we think of fellowship, we often think about eating. We have to be across the table. That's Fellowship can happen then. But fellowship should be happening when we're interacting with one another before and after the service and throughout the week. And what are we talking about? We could be talking about some things that don't matter for eternity like the weather or sports. That's not a problem. It's not that we can't talk about those things. But we should at some point be talking about the truth. We speak As we speak to one another in love, we are growing up the body so that we're helping us all become mature. It's not that just we all come here and we sit under the teaching of God's Word and now we're going to be mature. It says each per, as each person is speaking the truth to one another. And it goes on in verse 16 to talk about as we're, as we're each contributing to the needs of the body. That like the joints, each have a responsibility. They have a, a purpose in the body. Each of you have a responsibility within the body. And as we are working together as a body, as a living organism, then we are making each other mature and they are making us mature. You're helping to mature me. I'm helping to mature you. You're helping to mature the person across the aisle. You're helping to mature younger people and so on. And they're helping to mature you. It's and the, and the result is, look at the end of verse 16, it causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. God has at the center of what He is doing the local church. And the reason that He has done that is because He has designed that it would be the pillar and support of the truth. First Timothy 3.15 The church is the pillar and support of the truth. Not the leaders of the church. The church. You have a responsibility to uphold the truth. and In order for other people not to be blown away by every wind of doctrine, you have a responsibility to contribute by speaking the truth to one another in love and using your spiritual gifts to help, to help supply, to help give to the needs that are there. Needs of encouragement, needs of, of giving, needs of service, needs of prayer, and so on. Does your life reflect the glory of the Gospel? Is, is that what your life is about or is it about something else? If I took your life and I looked at the amount of time that you spend throughout the week or, or let's say the categories of things that you do throughout the week and see how much time you spend on each of those categories and I also took the amount of money that you spent, and I looked at each of those categories and see how much you spent. If I had all of those things, your time and your money, and I took that and I compared it, compared it to a good neighbor of yours. Okay, not, I'm not thinking about your worst neighbor, but let's say a good neighbor who's an unbeliever. How does your time management match up with his or her time management? Is your life any different? Are, are you spending the same time, amount of time doing the things that they're doing? Obviously, we have jobs that we have to do. We have to eat. 
and so on, but what do we do with the rest of our time? Does our recreation look a lot like our neighbor's? Or is our recreation often, or, or, or is our recreation um, based on what is going on at the church? Or what is going on in the lives of other believers in our church? What about your money? Is your portfolio any different than theirs as far as how you spend your money? Or is it the same? Would it be hard to tell the difference? Are you playing the same games, surfing the same sites on the Internet, or watching the same things on TV? I mean, it's it's very easy for us to, to slip into the mindset that this world is all about me and satisfying my pleasures, using my money in the way I want to, but, but really, all of those things are God's. And the Gospel should be at the center of what we do. And so, if our lives as Christians are centered on the Gospel, then it will reflect in the way that we spend our time and we spend our money. God has given us the Gospel. We should glory in the Gospel. We should keep our focus on the Gospel. And if we do and we'll avoid being carried away by every wind of doctrine. And we'll avoid being carried away by all these meaningless time wasters and money wasters that there are in life. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Jesus Christ that He did die for us, took our place when we deserved Your wrath. Thankful that You showed us that You accepted His payment by resurrecting Him from the dead. And not only that, but He also appeared to several hundred people to prove that He was alive, that He had conquered death, that death was now dead, that death no longer has a sting, as Paul says. It's actually a victory for us as Christians. That when we die, we have won because we're in Christ. And so we praise You for the glory that is Yours in the Gospel. And we want to live our lives based on the Gospel. We don't want to waste our lives. We don't want to waste Your resources, the money that You've allowed us to, to have in our care, we don't want to treat the church that you have that your son has built with disdain or as just another thing that we do on the calendar of our lives. We want it to be the center of 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 our lives because it's the center of what you're doing in this era. You are showing your glory not through individuals, pioneers out there who who are trying to show love, not through Uh, agencies that are doing lots of social help. The way that you show your glory primarily is through the local church as believers are being changed. And I pray that you would change us. You would help us to avoid being carried away by every wind of doctrine which seems to fall prey to every church in human history. I pray that you would guard us, protect us by, by giving us the desire and the strength to persevere, to seek the Gospel, 
and to understand it and to speak it to each other, help provide for one another's needs. I pray that the result would be, as it was in Acts, that many people would be added to the church, that people would be being saved because they see a difference. I pray that we would not become complacent and think that we've already arrived in any way, personally or as a church, but that we would recognize humbly that we need we need to continue to grow. We need more grace. We need more growth spiritually. So help us in that, we pray. Forgive us for for failing, for giving up at times, for turning towards things that don't matter eternally. Help us to commit ourselves to You and give ourselves holy, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.